0: Welcome back to the Global Greek Influence Podcast, I'm Panayota Pimenidou. I'm with Marina Hadzopoulos, an entrepreneur, author of articles, essays and stories, and director in this episode. Marina studied math and music at Brown University and has an MS in mechanical engineering from MIT. Marina was founding CEO of Z Corporation, an early market leader in 3D printing, out of MIT from the mid-90s until mid-2000. She was a member of the National Board of Research and Innovation for the Republic of Cyprus, a director of Cynosure, INC, a leader in aesthetics, the GSI Group, a supplier of laser-based equipment, and context holding a leader in large format scanners. Now Marina is Board Chair of Levitronics Technologies and President of the Hellenic Innovation Network. She is on the MIT Corporation Visiting Committee for Mechanical Engineering, the Advisory Board of MIT Enterprise Forum Greece, Eurobank's EGG Incubator and Mindspace Entrepreneurial Program. Marina discusses if more funding for startups in an ecosystem equates success, the initial critical decisions a startup needs to make, the importance of having the right team, a diverse team of skill sets, experiences and interests, even if you, as an entrepreneur, get what the market needs wrong. Why pivoting is the right word in times of crisis? Marina also clarifies the myth of neglecting national interest when selling a startup to an enterprise. I also asked Marina about the gap in the academia between fundamental research funding and venture funding, where startups can find funding before getting to the point of revenues and what women bring in teams and leadership. Welcome to the show, Marina. And thank you so much for accepting the invitation to the Global Greek Influence podcast. Entrepreneurship. Thank you. and... <laughs> You're welcome. I'm really, really happy to have you here. Entrepreneurship and startups have become the economic phenomena of the current millennium. Based on your expertise, what are the main differences in entrepreneurship between the United States, Greece, and Cyprus? Some might think that these are some extremes of uh, cases for entrepreneurship, but in this case, we might want to see why entrepreneurship is thriving in the U.S. and what the obstacles in
1: Greece and Cyprus are. So within every startup ecosystem, there are several components, which include universities, research centers, which create innovation and talent. Um, And then you have incubators, accelerators, startup competitions, other startups, as well as large enterprise. And it's all these components that help build a startup ecosystem. Greece has started to develop uh, a great startup ecosystem. It's a little further behind, but uh, it's got all these components that are coming together. Um, And the same with Cyprus, which is a little further behind Greece. Um, One major difference I see between them is that there tends to be a little more focus on social enterprises in Greece and Cyprus and a little less focus on creating the next unicorn, which is a billion-dollar valued startup.
0: So you said that businesses in Greece and Cyprus do not concentrate on the unicorn over $1 billion exit as much, but follow more traditional approach to building, for example, a family team. Would this have to do with the teams not identifying the right markets or finding a similar product in other markets where the sales are significant?
1: So, uh, yeah. So, in terms of the family business, you definitely see a lot more of that in Greece and in Cyprus than uh, you would see in the United States. Um, And uh, in terms of finding markets, there's an interesting situation because there is so much more funding available in the united states than there is in greece and even and more so in, than in cyprus because of that a lot of times in the states you'll have startups that get funding that don't really know exactly who their customer is and their market they don't have a perfect product market fit there tends to be more urgency in greece and in cyprus because there is less funding they have to really try to identify a paying customer sooner. Um, and so I think in that regard, it's, it's quite healthy because they can't sort of flounder around not knowing where they're going. Uh, on the other hand, it poses its own challenges, not having as much capital. Obviously, you know, if there's a hiccup in the road, um, it can ultimately take the business um, under, whereas if you know, a startup has more capital... It can endure, you know, figuring out oh this isn't the right market and pivot to a different market. And you know, oh during COVID, a lot of companies had to pivot and find new market opportunities. Um, and so that's where you want adequate capital to help you make those kind of transitions.
0: We'll get later on to what are the most appropriate ways to find some capital, but let's start from the very
1: beginning, what are the main decisions a startup needs to make? So, um, there are several decisions. The first is um, understanding who is the customer that has a problem, what is the problem they have, is the problem big enough that they are willing to pay for a solution, and do you have a solution that fits that problem and um, is affordable for that customer to pay? More importantly is at that point is, is it a solution that you can protect? So ideally you can protect it with intellectual property, which is patents and know-how, which will allow you to block competitors from simply copying exactly what you've done. So that's really critical. The other critical component is having a great team around you with a diverse set of perspectives, different talents, different experiences, different skill sets, Different interests, different passions. And it's that diversity of opinion that allows you to reach great decision making at every step of the process. And so, one thing that I see a lot of entrepreneurs do is that they will hire people that are in their own image, but that's really a mistake. What you want to do is hire your team members to be very different. Um, And to fill in the holes that you have in terms of your own interests, skills, and capabilities. So the team and the product market fit are the two basic components which will allow you to succeed. And having said that, inevitably, you'll be a little bit wrong, whether it's about the market you're serving or about the product that you're offering. You won't be quite right. But if you have a strong team, you'll be able to pivot and you'll be able to figure it out and ultimately come up with a solution that meets the needs of the marketplace.
0: Teams are very important, and it's not always easy to build a good team or identify who are going to be the best people for a team. Mm -hmm. Now, when it comes to the new economy, the new economy of this era is characterized as the fourth industrial revolution, which primarily focuses on uh, digital technologies. Many countries around the world invest in digital technologies because they want to be at the forefront of the fourth industrial revolution. Unlikely, the Greek economy has never been a heavily industrial one, so in Greece we never had Uh, the Industrial Revolution that other countries, especially in Europe, experienced. So Greece's economy is primarily focused on tourism and on other services such as telecommunications and only recently started to invest in becoming part of that global digital economy. How could the digital economy transform an already heavily service-based economy?
1: You know, the fundamentals of an innovative um, technology ecosystem are already in Greece. There is tremendous amount of research that's happening in Greece on a technical level. Um, The problem has been that the focus of the academics has been on publications as opposed to patenting. And really, it's a shift in mindset to make them understand the importance of patenting and commercializing these innovations and finding the right team members, as we talked about the team, creating the team that's going to take it and run. It's not the academic necessarily that should be the one to commercialize the technology, but they need to be able to let the technology go and find the people who are going to take it and run with it. But those elements are already there. And, you know, Greece already has a lot of successful startups. They've had exits. They have incubators and accelerators to help support the ecosystem, and there's lots of funding available. So all the components are already there. Um, It's a question. The culture has been shifting. Um, The culture within academia is one that needs to shift toward commercialization, where that is rewarded, that's seen as a respectable outcome for one's research, and seeing that as an aspiration. And I think As academics see their peers become successful commercializing technology, they will say, hey, you know, that looks interesting. I'd like to do the same thing.
0: So, entrepreneurship transcends especially the U.S. academia Mm -hmm. compared to the European academia. so does the new age entrepreneurship limit itself in the case of Greece with startups that are sold and not turned into enterprises? Because nobody really wants to see the support of the startups and then nothing will be really left in the economy of a country Like, for example, we have in Greece many successful startups, and I guess that many successful startups are all over Europe. But we most often see them sold to bigger enterprises and not really into a larger enterprise that will have as a base, the country where it initially started.
1: So um, I think it's important to distinguish what happens. So for one thing, um, creating a startup and building a startup is extremely Laborious, like it's really, really hard, grueling, difficult work, and it, it people can get burnt out. I mean, that's just a very natural part of the process. After five or ten years, um, the entrepreneur may just be tired and may need someone else to take it. And so, selling there's nothing wrong with an entrepreneur selling out to a larger organization where that can enable the organization to continue to grow, to hire people locally, to create jobs, and to provide solutions to the marketplace. And very often, what happens, especially in the case of Greece, where Greece offers a great talent pool that is affordable, they speak English, they're well-educated in technology. So a company that acquires a Greek Startup is not necessarily going to say, we want to acquire what you've got, and now we're going to close up and we're not going to, we're going to fire all the people in Greece and move our operations to Palo Alto. Like, there's no way they're going to do that. The reason they would acquire a company in Greece is because they want the team. And a startup is only as valuable as its team. And so their objective there is going to be to hire the team and grow that team in Greece. Um, And so I don't think that's anything to worry about. And I don't think it's um, a problem. Whether or not that startup equity, those shares are owned by some Greek guy or some American guy, what's the difference? It doesn't really matter. The point is it's creating jobs in Greece, Um, Ultimately, I think that's really the objective here with the startups, is to be creating jobs in Greece.
0: You mentioned earlier that a key issue to capitalise on research, on innovative research work in the academia, Mm -hmm. is to secure that as its own intellectual property. And we see many universities in Greece, the rest of Europe and the US producing high quality research work and outputs. Many academics and researchers worldwide are unhappy by seeing their work staying in the lab. Mm -hmm. So, what is actually happening there? Is it really the mechanisms within the academia? Why research outputs based on publications and citations do not transfer the knowledge and innovation to useful products? Of course, as you said, that once these research outputs are published, they can no longer be patented. They have Mm -hmm. become publicly available. Exactly. But having discussed this issue with Greek professors in uh, U.S. universities, even though they are in the process of patenting, they find it very hard to find industries that would fund the last steps for this product to enter the market. I'm guessing that also in the United States, there are similar offices in universities, like in the UK, known as knowledge transfer offices. Mm -hmm. Are we lost in translation between academics, the industry? Do these knowledge transfer offices do their jobs? How could these people be better equipped to help this knowledge transfer?
1: Yeah, so I think there are several components. One is the culture and um, seeing this as an aspiration and something that's respected by their peers. Um, the second is for the universities to reward professors who do this and not to view it as being uh lesser, you know, uh, if if the professors are only promoted based on publications and not based on their commercial success, then obviously the professors are going to continue to move in the one direction. But then the final thing that you brought up, which I think is a very important one, is one of funding. And there is a funding gap between sort of the research grants that a professor can get for doing that very early stage research, and then the later venture funding that's available once the product market fit is complete and, and someone can make a really good pitch and they have a team in place and all of that. Between those two spots, there is a funding gap. And um, that's something uh, I'm involved with at MIT called the Deshpande Center, where they provide, and it's not a huge amount of funding, but it's very critical funding to get technologies out of the lab and to get them to a stage where they can be fundable by professional investors. And so these might be grants from $50,000 to $100,000 and even more, where it will take that raw technology that is beyond where it can get a government grant, um, you know, sort of the traditional academia um, funding, and yet it's not quite ready for venture funding and it will bridge that gap. Um, And so that is very, very important. And That is an area that um, will require development um, in Greece in order to to get there. The one nice thing in Greece, the funds in Greece, the venture funds are smaller than they are in the United States, and they invest earlier stage with uh, smaller amounts. And so the ecosystem is a little friendlier and easier on that side of things. I would say, than in the United States, where these funds have gotten so large, and it's just as much work for them to put half a million dollars to work as $50 million to work. And so they're looking for larger investments of slightly more developed uh, startups.
0: Now, as you said, you have been part of the MIT's program for getting research out from the lab to yeah. the market, but you have also done it yourself when you approached back in the 90s a 3D printing, um, actually 3D printing uh, researchers in, mm-hmm. at MIT, based on that experience that you had to go in the lab with them and create this startup for the early 3D printing Compared to the MIT's program, what similarities and what differences do you see in your approach and the institutional approach?
1: Um, It's all part of the same idea. So um, when MIT develops any technology, typically the academic researcher who's involved will continue to be involved in the startup in some capacity, maybe one day a week and be on the board of directors, they might be the CTO. Um, but it, you know, generally it's going to be taken by somebody else, whether it's a large company which takes the technology, or whether it's an individual or a team of people. It could be students um, that decide to spin it out. Um, or it could be in our case, it was someone, you know, I was coming from the outside, um, but with two who had been working on the technology inside. So we were sort of a hybrid team, four of us, two of us from the outside, two from the inside. It's all kind of the same. Uh, You know, it's the process is is very similar. um, And it's a question of, you know, as I say, building the team, finding the product market fit, and then ultimately finding the funding. So in our case, we had some initial funding available, which allowed us, to get off the ground before we went um, to other sources of funding.
0: Based on the work you have done, both in business, but also in the academia, what would you say that the avoidable mistakes in
1: commercializing research are? The most common mistake from, um, that a technical researcher will make is that they are not speaking with the customers enough. Um, maybe they always go back to the same customer as opposed to going to new customers and getting a variety of perspectives over the solution that they have. Um, It's always going to be more comfortable for a technical person to stay in the lab and to tweak the product and to continue to make innovations, but a little bit in a vacuum and in isolation. And so the, 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 Most important thing is for them to continue to stay in touch with the marketplace and understand what needs um, there are in the marketplace. And then also to build the team that is, as I say, complementary and to respect the expertise of others. Um, So the technical person may be really excited about some innovation they have, but maybe it's not really meeting the needs of the market that they've identified. And- it's an iterative process to always be matching the technical innovation to the needs of the marketplace and to make sure that those two are going hand in hand. Um, And that has to be iterative. Um, And you always want to make sure that what it is that you have that's unique and different is what you are bringing forth into the marketplace. What I see happen very often is Um, people will get excited because they'll talk to some customer that has some problem that, yes, maybe they could solve, but number one, it'll take some research and some work to some resources to go in that direction. But worse, there is already another existing solution um, that is perfectly fine or more affordable or whatever, and you're not really offering anything that's special and unique that can block out others. And so it's a question of always marking your territory. What do you have that's special and unique and different that nobody else has? And make sure that you are serving that market need. But if you don't have something unique and you're going to end up competing on price, that's not really worth pursuing. From
0: what I understand, many academics believe that they own the technology they create in the labs. So mm-hmm. it's hard for them, after a point, to let go. <laughs> or in a sense that it's going to belong also to others outside the people who have worked for it. But of yeah. course they have to understand that there are other people who make their products becoming public. So without them, they couldn't have achieved that. From a broader perspective, what is missing between research and innovation and entrepreneurship? How about engineers and scientists to have a better understanding of what happens uh, within a startup to bring out of the labs their technology? maybe new programs of study? Because I don't think entrepreneurship can be just promoted, especially to engineers and scientists only through
1: seminars or workshops. I mean, yeah, I think you could do that. You could educate engineers more about that side of things. I think a lot of engineers don't have an interest in that. And I think they're perfectly happy to let someone else pursue that. And I think that's fine. Uh, the only point is that they need to be aware that there is this other skill set that they will need to bring to the startup in order to commercialize it. So as long as they appreciate that and they bring on the right team members to do that, and they respect them and allow them to do their thing, um, I think often it has to be separate people. And I think it often works best when that's done with separate people when. Part of the team is focused really strictly on the technical side, and part of the team is focused pretty strictly on the market side. And then you have people who have one foot in each who are helping communicate in both directions in a very efficient way. But each of those activities, the technical and the market side, are extremely time-consuming. And so it's really impossible for people to go deep on both. Um, and, um, and, and a lot of times the, it's the individuals just are not inclined toward that. You know, you might have an engineer who's very introverted, extremely creative, and all they want to do is be in the lab and be thinking up great ideas and, um, pushing the technology in new directions. And so you don't want to waste too much of their time, um, in meetings with, customers when you can go to them and just kind of give them the summary at the end of the meeting.
0: Because I think I forgot to ask you about uh, the funding. What's happening for with a startup? Uh, how could they attract investors without having sufficient
1: revenues? So um, what you wanted, first of all, one option is always to go to an incubator or accelerator and they can provide, you know, oftentimes office space, some early funding. There are startup competitions, MIT Enterprise Forum, Greece, but beyond that, what you need to do is validate the product. You need to validate that there's a market and that you have a solution that meets the needs of the marketplace. And The best way to do that is to get early customers. Customers, once you have a customer, a paying customer, number one, you get some revenues, which is huge, and that's the ideal source of capital in your early days. Um, but it also is validating to your product. Oftentimes, the customers will provide grants that are non-dilutive to your equity um, because you may be offering what they see as a very important solution that will help them. And so they want to fund your development because they want to see it come to market. Um, Alternatively, they may invest equity in the business. So These strategic investors, whether it's customers or suppliers or others who have a vested interest in your company's success, that is the best form of early capital, because not only is it very patient money, not only are your interests extremely well aligned, but also it's very validating for professional investors to see that someone. So if you're a venture capitalist, you're a generalist, you you don't necessarily know everything about everything in every single marketplace. You couldn't possibly because you're investing in all sorts of different markets. And so you have to rely on experts within each of these industries. And if they are investing in this startup, that's hugely validating. And that will help get these professional investors to invest in the startup.
0: One final question, Marina, before we finish our discussion. Many people talk these days about women empowerment mm-hmm. in politics, in the academia. Why do we need more women leaders? Is it just because women, in a sense, are 50% of the worldwide population because we don't want to miss out any talent out half of the world's population? Or is there more to it?
1: So it's certainly that. I mean, you'd be foolish to take half of your talent pool and just cut it out. So I think people are recognizing that. Um, but in addition, as I was saying before, it's really important to, on your team to have a diversity of perspectives and experience and interests and passion. Having a female perspective on the team is going to add that diversity of opinion that is so important to move your startup forward. People appreciate that. It also adds a different cultural aspect uh, to the team. I think both men and women who have experienced working in that environment where the two genders are collaborating very well together will agree that one plus one is more than two, that having both genders present creates an atmosphere that is extremely productive and collaborative when it works well. And um, so it's really the challenge of how to make that work. And when it does work, um, it's really magical. And I think um, our team at Z Corporation, one thing that really um, helped us to become successful was that our team was so diverse, so different. Everyone was bringing different skill sets and perspectives to the table. And it was that feeding of the different skill sets and experience um, that allowed us to reach better decisions. But it requires a deep respect on all sides for what the other person is bringing to the table. Where you know when they first give their opinion, you might say that's crazy. No, I don't see it that way. But you you argue it out and you realize, oh, I understand now what they're saying and. And it requires that kind of respect for the other person's opinion.
0: I read some research articles on um, women in, uh, in STEM, in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Mm-hmm. And through that research, one could see that women were most productive in widely diverse mm-hmm. team. What you also mentioned before as an advantage of women leaders that was the women's perspective on things, still some people believe that the women's perspective might hide weakness. Of course, this shows that the people who believe that might not really respect that different perspective. Mm-hmm. But I think it's maybe the perception that most people have that women's perspective might be a soft, nurturing perspective that does not really fit in
1: the business world or in the engineering world? So, I think um, what is required to build a successful organization are two aspects. One is, for sure, um, accountability and a driving force. It can't be all like, oh, we're having fun every day, and who cares if we ever make a product? Like, There has to be a real driving force to get a product to market. Um, And it it has to be kind of unrelenting in many ways. At the same time, you need a nurturing environment. I mean, that's something that I had to learn. I'm a woman, but that did not come naturally to me at all, Um, which is a good manager um, has an aspect of being a teacher and being a mentor and really helping their employees to grow, to learn, to be interested and excited about the work they're doing, and to really feel like they own the direction of the business. And um, it was really my uh, male person who worked for me, who taught me um, many of these elements of management that are so important in terms of mentoring and teaching the employees and helping them to grow. Um, so I. I I don't think that that necessarily falls along gender lines but when it does um, again it's a question of building a diverse team so you might need someone you know you can't have everyone sitting around teaching and nurturing all day long like you have to drive toward a product and again just like i said with the engineering versus the market facing Sometimes it needs to be two different people. You might have one person on the team who's really driving things forward, who, you know, isn't as soft. And you might have another person who's more growing people and helping them learn and mentor them and that sort of thing. So sometimes you can't expect one individual to have all these characteristics. And that's why you really want a diverse team so that you can get everything within the team. It doesn't have to be within the individual.
0: Diversity is empowering very much let us take this with us after this (laughs) discussion thank you so much for being here for sharing your thoughts your expertise and answering all of my questions
1: it was my pleasure and a great honor and really nice chatting with you thank you so much
0: thank you all for staying until the end september will be a month dedicated to innovation The new business formed at these times and many surprising guests and topics. To be up to date with news from the Global Greek Influence Podcast and suggest your topics, subscribe, like and review the Global Greek Influence Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor FM and four more podcasting platforms. You can contact the Global Greek Influence through the podcast, Facebook and Twitter accounts, the podcast website, globalgreekinfluence.com and LinkedIn page.